1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everyone. It's Takuya here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis?
0: And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad-free.
1: Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening.
0: I'm sensing a theme here, and the theme is blood.
1: You are never so good a child as you are when your mother dies. With your sisters you wash her, head to toe, as she had once done for you all. It's the last thing you can do for her. Wash her body and anoint her with oil and adorn her with wreaths and laments. You make her ready. You put a coin in her mouth for the ferryman. You pray you will see her on the farther shore. In her funeral procession, you trail behind her as if you were the dead one. You tear at your hair and clothing. You beat yourself about the face. With your family, you lay her in her resting place and you want to lie down beside her. Instead, you do what you have to. You leave her alone. You will never see her again alive. And that is the only truth. You see her again that night. It begins with a knock. Late at night, after the rest of your family is in bed, it's your name she calls at the door, in the voice she once used to call you in for dinner. You know what this is. You look for her out the window. It's your mother, and not your mother. Her flesh is swollen in death. Her mouth hangs slack and full of blood. She stays, and she hangs about the door, but she does not say your name again. In the morning, she's gone. She comes again the next night. This time, your sisters are with you and they beg you not to open the door. They know what will happen if you do. If you open the door, she'll come in, trailing death into your father's house. They beg and they cry and remind you what she is. You sit with your back to the door and you try to obey them while your mother sits on the other side and speaks your name. Night after night she comes, at the sixth hour, in the dark. Your family waits with you. They hold your hands. They hold you back. They keep you on their side of the door. With love and reason, they keep you from answering, barely. Your family is trying to save you. They're digging up corpses and boiling hearts in wine. They're hanging hawthorn branches over windowsills. Your father sails to far off Santorini to bring in an expert. At the sixth hour of the night, your sisters sit with you. With love and with reason, they anchor you to the world. But you have a secret. You don't want to be saved. You're beginning to look forward to her visits. You know what she is and you don't care. You'd do anything to see her walk through the door again. Herself or not herself. You don't care what happens after. How could you have left her there, alone in her resting place? How can you leave her outside in the dark on the wrong side of the door? Your father will be back soon with his hunter from Santorini, but he won't make it in time. The next time she comes, you won't let her speak your name and go without an answer. The next time she comes, you'll open the door. I'm Jen McMenemy.
0: And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl, the Halloween edition. It's the most wonderful time of the year. (laughs) I mean, the nights are
1: drawing in, the good TV is back, and you know, Halloween is on the horizon. Don't get us wrong, we love the summer, the long hot days, the swimming, the sunshine, but there's a magic to autumn. And today, we're celebrating that seasonal magic with a look at ancient vampire stories across the Greek, Roman, Germanic, and Mesopotamian cultures.
0: Yeah, so we're looking at vampire stories across a lot of the cultures that we've been focusing on in this podcast. And There are vampire stories across almost every continent. We're not sure about Antarctica. We did not call the penguins for this episode. We did not interview any penguins for this episode because we are slackers. I mean,
1: would they even tell you?
0: Did the penguins have a secrecy code about their vampires?
1: I can't tell you, but yes.
0: They're secretive about their secrecy code about their vampires. I understand. (laughs) (laughs) So we left a lot of cultures out, but it's safe to say that most cultures have some form of vampire myth. And while we'd love to go into all these myths, for this podcast, we're basically focusing on the Greco-Roman lore and also Sumerian because I wanted the most ancient vampire and also Germanic because I stumbled on this ancient Gothic myth that I just had to include. So that's what we're doing this time. So have your sharpened stakes and hawthorn branches at the ready and make sure you don't listen to this podcast after dark. The oldest vampire myth in the world is around 6,000 years
1: old and originates from Sumeria or Babylon. The Babylonians and Assyrians were terrified of the Edomu. They were also terrified of becoming an Edomu after they died. These vampiric creatures were said to be the spirit of a dead person who was unable to find peace in the afterlife. This miserable creature wandered the earth, just chilling and waiting to attack the unsuspecting passerby. The name Edomu means snatched away or evil wind gust, and that perfectly sums up these early vampires. These were furious souls who had been denied their proper burial and were now stuck wandering the earth with no joy in their afterlife and a desperate hunger for misery.
0: According to myth, the Edemu were both the first traditional vampire, i.e. bloodsucker, and a psychic vampire, or the type of vampire that sucks out your life force. The Edemu could be anything from a corporeal winged demon to a shambling corpse, moving shadows, or gusts of wind. And they were bad news, because Edemu were hungry for blood and life energy, and they really didn't care what got in their way. There weren't many ways to protect yourself against these ancient vampires. No garlic, wild roses, or grains of rice scattered across a doorway would keep these creatures at bay. When an Edimew showed up on the doorstep of an unsuspecting family, these creatures literally spelled the downfall for everyone dwelling in that house. Edemus spread disease, misery, and a kind of madness that made normally law-abiding folks turn to criminal acts, and they frequently destroyed entire families. Because when an edemu found a place it wanted to chill in, it stayed there until the entire family was wiped out. And when that family was wiped out and presumably not properly buried, the Edemu moved on to its next victim.
1: Some myths claim the non-corporeal edemu could enter the living through the ear and take possession of their hosts. This sounds terrible. (laughs) It just reminds me of when you hang your washing out in the summertime and you have to like shake it out afterwards to make sure that there aren't earwigs in it because if there's an earwig, it could crawl into your ear.
0: This is basically an earwig. It's a vampiric, non-corporeal earwig. Gross. Yeah.
1: So once a person was possessed, the Edemu generally destroyed their life. They sucked the life and blood out of their host and also just had a grand old time ruining their personal life because, you know, it wasn't enough to suck a person's life for us. Nope. An edemu was all about causing chaos and misery for the people connected to their poor victims. The mythology says that Edamus would make ordinary people turn to crime and violence. One day you might be totally mild mannered, just, you know, tilling your fields, and the next day you might be robbing your neighbors or picking a fight with random strangers or family. Edamus possession could cause you to have a radical personality shift in a short period of time.
0: And according to myth, just about anyone could become an edemu. We found lots of conflicting ways that you could become an edemu, including being murdered, dying young, dying violently, dying in battle, dying before you find love, and that just seems completely unfair, dying during pregnancy, drowning, or failing to properly honor the gods, dying of anything but natural causes as an old person peacefully in your bed, or having anything but an absolutely perfect life. Basically... We're all going to become enemies. Get excited.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the takeaway is we're all going to be enemies and we're all going to be like really hungry and really miserable. So afterlife 101, prep
0: yourself. All of the myths say, though, that the surest way you'll become an enemy after you die is not to be properly buried. Burial rites were extremely important to the ancient Babylonians and Sumerians. Like the ancient Greeks, the Mesopotamians believed in an afterlife, and they believed this afterlife existed beneath the earth. And because of this belief, Mesopotamians buried their dead. They believed that burying the dead meant they would be better able to access the next world because the next world was under the ground. Unless you were royalty, when you died, you were likely to be buried under your home or next to it. So people were a lot of the time just burying family members in the basement.
1: Not creepy at all.
0: It's just part of the culture. I mean, I wouldn't go into that basement after
1: dark, but that's just me.
0: I know. I mean, I kind of feel like as a kid, we all have a fear of our basements anyway. And if you know grandma's down there. And if you know grandma might be an edemu, because unlike the rest
1: of your family, you know grandma did not have a fun time.
0: Right. Well, if grandma didn't have the perfect life and found beautiful love and didn't die in the exact ideal way, then she's going to become an edemu. There's an edemu in the basement. There's one in every basement. Just don't even kid yourselves. They're everywhere. That's
1: like a R.L. Stein book ready to happen. Edomu in the basement. (laughs) I mean, unless, of course, they didn't have basements in ancient Mesopotamia, which is also possible.
0: Oh, they might not have. Yeah, that's a really good point.
1: In which case, they would have just buried them in the floor of the house.
0: Yeah. So like in the kitchen or I don't know, like the living area. (laughs) I have not researched floor plans of ancient Mesopotamian houses. I'm assuming that there's an area where you prepare your food because that seems like a you know, maybe you wouldn't bury a corpse in that area. Maybe it would be you know what, I don't even know if I want to go down this rabbit hole. We're moving on. So unless you were royalty, when you died, you were likely to be buried under your home or next to it terrifying all the children in that house forever so your family could properly maintain your grave because if you weren't properly buried or your grave wasn't maintained, there was a chance you might rise from the ground and become an enemy.
1: One interesting thing I found in the research was that the ancient Mesopotamians rarely cremated their dead for two reasons. First, wood was very scarce, so cremation wasn't really a viable option for most people. And second, and this is the one that I found like super fascinating was because cremation was a process that burnt the body and sent the soul skyward and human souls weren't meant to ascend into the heavens. The ancient Mesopotamians believed that human souls belonged in the netherworld or the underworld and so a human soul that tried to go into the heavens wouldn't belong there and potentially could come back down to earth as you guessed it an edemu. The ancient Babylonians and Sumerians believed that not creating a vengeful and angry spirit in the first place was the best prevention to keep an Edomu from arising. But once you were faced with one, there weren't a lot of things you could do to defend against it. Spirit bowls made of clay and inscribed with powerful spells might keep you safe. It's a big might. Ancient Babylonians and Sumerians avoided areas where the Edomu were known to frequent, probably anywhere violence had occurred, old battlefields and the scenes of disasters or plague where the dead may or may not have been properly buried.
0: And according to legend, the Edomu haven't ever died out. These evil ancient vampires still stalk the urban centers of the world, preying on the homeless, which is not cool, Edemus not cool. Right. I don't know if there are any edemus listening to this podcast. If there are, we are on to you and don't be jerks. Um, One thing I noticed about the Edemu myth is how closely it tracks with things that must have caused great anxiety among ancient people, including plague, because disease is another thing that walks into a house full of healthy people and doesn't leave until everyone in the house is dead. The etimu could have been used to explain the unexplainable to ancient people, how a mysterious epidemic could wipe out entire families and communities. The other thing that's super interesting about the gen is the thing about personality changes, because that must have also been a really mysterious thing to people in the ancient world, why somebody's personality might dramatically change. And I feel like in modern times, we might use trauma or a mental health problem or even a head injury to explain a dramatic personality change. But thousands of years ago, these ancient vampires could have been used to explain the sudden onset of some mental illnesses, especially ones with a genetic link.
1: Yeah. And because I'm totally a dark, dark person, and as Jenny will tell you, a murderino who's possibly too into true crime, the head injury thing rings a bell for me because it makes me think of the correlation of serial killers who had traumatic head injuries that then change their personalities. So because it's Halloween, I'm going to throw some of the names out there for you. Yes, please do. (laughs) (laughs) So Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, John Wayne Gacy, who is also known as the Killer Clown, Fred West, the Gloucester Road Murders, David Berkowitz, Son of Sam, Ed Gein, Ian Brady, the Moore's murderer. Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire ripper. And I mean, the list goes on and on, so I'm not going to keep going. But I think that's a good taste of some of the major murderers. Oh, and how could I forget Dennis Rader, the BTK killer. These are all murderers who had traumatic head injuries? These are all serial killers who had traumatic brain injuries. And after they had their injuries, there was a marked difference in their personality.
0: They started murdering after the traumatic brain injury.
1: Yeah, and as I was sort of googling these names, there was a study in 2017 that actually linked traumatic brain injury to an increase of onset psychopathy. People who were not prone to being psychopathic could, with traumatic brain injury, then start exhibiting those signs.
0: Wow. I had absolutely no idea. We should link to that in the show notes. I will. The other thing is
1: some serial killers had brain tumors, which impacted their frontal lobe that presented the same psychopathic tendencies.
0: Yeah. And I feel like this is the kind of thing that could happen in the ancient world. Like there was a lot of violence, a lot of battles, probably a lot of domestic violence. Like I bet traumatic head injuries happen sometimes. And sometimes they probably did cause these dramatic personality shifts and people didn't really make the connection. And the enemy is one way to explain that. And of course, how are you going to know if somebody has a brain tumor in the ancient world unless they're dead already?
1: Or if you had some kind of fever that impacted your brain, the same thing could happen. You could wake up totally different. I'm Helena Bonham-Carter, and for BBC Radio 4,
0: this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II.
1: They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian Mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your
0: podcasts.
1: Hello everyone, you may recognise me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognise me from anything yet. Together we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. And can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. So our next ancient vampire is the Babylonian Uruku. I couldn't find an exact date for these vampires, but they're in the same family as the Edomir, so they probably originate around the same time period, give or take. The Uruku was a resurrected corpse, a person who had recently died and returned from the grave as a vampiric spirit. Urukus were said to be found in deserted areas like graveyards, mountains, or seas. I don't know why seas would be deserted, but apparently they are.
0: So I have a question about that. I mean, is the Uruku just hanging out in the sea?
1: That's what the some of the mythology said. I guess, like, maybe if you went far enough into the sea where you're off the beaten track. Yeah.
0: Maybe they're the bodies of drowned sailors.
1: That's what I would guess, and they must have had lots of storms that came up really quickly in this area of the world, as they do anywhere when you live near to the sea. And it could just be an explanation for what happens to the people who have a burial at sea, which is not really a burial, it's just drowning. Sure. The Urukus could look like a lot of things, from shambolic corpses to an evil gust of wind like the Edamu. The name Uruku means vampire that attacks man, and again, that's a pretty on-the-nose name for these creatures.
0: The Uruku was described as doing a lot of things, attacking its victims, torturing them, sucking their blood, but their main MO was to attack while the victim was sleeping. It would sit on the victim's chest and render them completely immobile and helpless as they suck the life out of them. The victim would become completely incapacitated. They might fall into a coma or catch the disease that would spread to the entire family. Unlike the Edemu, however, there was a way to cure a victim of the Uruku. The ancient Babylonians would spin white and black yarn to make a canopy for the bed of the person suffering from the uruku possession so the idea is that the uruku comes at night right jen Mm -hmm. so if you know or you suspect that someone in your family has an uruku in the daytime you can weave this canopy and hang it over their bed so that the uruku can't come back and they also performed a ritual chant
1: what I found really interesting about this myth was the canopy. The canopy probably served as protection from insects and other creepy crawlies that attacked in the night and spread disease.
0: Yeah. And in a lot of different areas of the world, people still sleep with canopies just to protect against bugs and different kinds of, you know, bugs, basically. Yeah. I mean, I, I live in London
1: and the summer was slightly hotter. We're dealing with bugs coming in that would never come in before.
0: Yeah. So you need it. You need a canopy is what you need.
1: I mean, yes, please. This interesting detail about curing Eurekae victims gives us some insight into how ancient Babylonians actually worked to protect their families from disease. The Yuruku could also be used to explain some diseases people got that caused them to have low energy, like malaria. Protecting against mosquitoes could protect against malaria. This myth could also be used to explain people who suddenly seem to contract illnesses that made them lethargic, such as medical exhaustion, pernicious anemia, or some forms of depression. And I wanted to stop for a minute and tell you guys a little bit about pernicious anemia, which is something that I have. It's really interesting because people who are anemic are pale and, you know, the fact fact that I'm a ginger, this is no surprise, um, but we are a paler than usual and pernicious anemia is an autoimmune disease and some of the things that it presents with is you get very, very, very tired, you get very weak, you get very confused.
0: Can you tell me about medical exhaustion? Because this is a term that I had not heard until you were telling me about it with this research. Well,
1: medical exhaustion is being exhausted all the time.
0: But it's not just being tired like you haven't gotten a lot of sleep, right?
1: No. It's chronic fatigue syndrome. In England, they call it medical exhaustion.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, I had no idea. So this is just like you are really, really tired. You can't get out of bed for four days at a time. Is that kind of what it feels like?
1: Um not necessarily. So medical exhaustion or chronic fatigue syndrome, they're incredibly serious because it's not just about being tired. There are other things that happen as well. Like you may have problems with breathing, you may have all kinds of other issues. It's not just like, I'm really tired and if I nap some more you'll get better. When I found out I had pernicious anemia, I had been tired for a really long time and it's actually because something of something Jenny said that led me to being diagnosed. Because it's an autoimmune disease, your red blood cells are getting sort of just not not working properly or getting destroyed because lots of science, which I'm not going to get into. But Jenny had said, you've had bronchitis three times in six months. There's got to be something wrong with you. You need to go and have like your vitamins and stuff checked out. And I did. And the first thing they said was, oh, you are having some problems with having like no B12 in your body and no folic acid. And I was like, okay. And so we did some more testing and we found out that it was pernicious anemia. And the thing about it that was so scary is I would sleep. I would sleep so much. And I was the sort of person who would only need six hours of sleep a night. And I would sleep for 12 hours, wake up on a Saturday and then go to my husband, really tired and have a nap. And he'd be like, but you slept 12 hours. How are you still tired? And I found it really hard to concentrate and I would get dizzy. And I was never the sort of person who got dizzy. I'd lose feeling in my fingers and toes. So I was like completely convinced that I must have diabetes or some kind of circulatory disease. And these were all things that happened pretty suddenly. The exhaustion creeped up over about a two-year period and then the rest of the symptoms sort of started presenting over about a two-month period. And the thing about it is you do not have the symptoms of pernicious anemia right away. It sort of creeps up on you because your body has a lot of B12 in it and you can live off the stores it has for two to four years. So you may be becoming deficient and not even realizing it.
0: Yeah. And I think the interesting thing here, just to link it back, is that this is a disease that you could have for a really long time and your tiredness might be building up and you might think it's normal. And then all of a sudden, one day you just kind of can't get out of bed. And in the ancient world, they didn't know what pernicious anemia is. They didn't know what red blood cells were. They didn't know about B12. So the Uruku could explain something like that.
1: And the reason it's called pernicious is because you would die from it. Because if you didn't get the B12 that you needed and your body isn't producing it, then it leads to like lots of complications, including different types of stomach cancer. So up until they figured out the best way of treating it, it was deadly. That's what pernicious means. It means deadly.
0: Yeah. So in the ancient world, if you were in ancient Babylon, they would just think that you had an uruku.
1: There are lots of wasting diseases that probably were urukus, not necessarily pernicious anemia. It could have been
0: tuberculosis, malaria, some things that would have been insect born, which... Ex- explains why they used a canopy. Totally. The other interesting thing is the tie to sleep paralysis. And sleep paralysis occurs when a person is dreaming and then all of a sudden they believe they're awake, but they can't move. And this is something I've had, so I can talk about that. People who suffer from sleep paralysis are caught between stages of sleep. So you think you're awake and you perceive that you're in bed and you don't think it's a dream, but you're actually half awake and even kind of dreaming in that state. And you can't move or speak. And that can be really terrifying because you also sort of are dreaming so you do have hallucinations or things that seem like hallucinations there was a thing on this american life it was actually it's mike burbiglia he did this thing sleepwalk with me that talks about his opposite problem which is where he would dream and his body would move around and act out the dreams while he was having them it's like a really extreme form of sleepwalking he was sleeping in this hotel room and he thought he was a superhero or something and he jumped up and jumped through a plate glass window and fell two stories and was miraculously not seriously hurt this is what happened to him. And sleep paralysis is kind of the opposite of that because ordinarily your brain shuts off the movement of your body when you are sleeping so that you can't do that. You can't get up and act out your dreams. And this is kind of the opposite problem where you're kind of waking up, but your brain is still keeping your body frozen so that you're not jumping up and sleepwalking and acting out your dreams. So you're basically paralyzed and it doesn't always last that long. When I had it, it just lasted for a few minutes, but it was a really scary few minutes. Sometimes what it feels like is a feeling of something threatening being in the room with you. And sometimes it feels like something is sitting on your chest or choking you, like you feel this sort of pressure or like you can't breathe. And in ancient and medieval times, this feeling was sometimes explained by saying that there was a demon or witch or another creature sitting on your chest and sucking at your life force. And I could totally see why they would say that because when it happened, to me the first time I was lying in bed, I had been on a road trip and I was in this hotel room and I was on my back and I woke up and, um, It felt like my consciousness was being sucked out of my body and like I was fighting to stay in my body and I couldn't move and I was paralyzed. and I could open my eyes, but that took like this incredible act of will. So that was really scary. And then um, it happened a second time where it seemed like there was something in the room with me and it was sort of like this shadow that was in one corner of the room that was like really tall and skinny and took up the whole space of this one corner and it's probably just like a shadow from a window or something might have been the slender man jenny it could have been the slender man um (laughs) (laughs) it kind of it kind of seemed like the slender man yeah (laughs) anyway so slender man that's the takeaway uh this has been
1: ancient history fangirl your confessional (laughs) edition
0: Ancient history fangirl, creepypasta edition. Um, Sleep paralysis is really terrifying and it really does feel like there's something scary in the room with you or like something is sucking you out of your body or like something sitting on your chest. So I can see why they would have these explanations for it. Yeah, totally.
1: So our next ancient vampire is the Vrykolakas. The Vrykolakas, which I hope I'm pronouncing right. I saw a few different pronunciations, but we're going to go with this one.
0: We're just going to go with this one because we had to pick one.
1: Mm -hmm. They're from ancient Greece, and they were demons who possessed the recently dead. This myth dates from
0: possibly around
1: 4,500 BC. The Vrygalaka has been described a number of different ways, but one of the main ways is as a possessed corpse of the recently deceased. These creatures looked like corpses that had been feeding on blood. They were described as bloated with blood. Their faces would be red and flushed, their lips red and their mouths full of blood. They got that way, according to myth, by sucking the blood from their living victims.
0: I'm sensing a theme here, and the theme is blood. Oh, it's all about the blood. Sorry, guys. This
1: episode, blood, blood, and more blood.
0: Well, it is the vampire episode, so that's fair.
1: Exactly. The Vrykalaka operates like this. It rises from its grave at night and knocks on the door of family members of the recently deceased they're possessing, calling out their names. If you were fooled into answering the door, you were shit out of luck. The Vrykalaka would walk in and suck you dry. Some versions of the myth say that you would die from disease along with the rest of your family.
0: But there was a way to protect yourself from these creatures. So I kind of feel like the ancient Mesopotamians did not have it together. They did not know how to protect themselves from the Edemu. But as we go into the Vrykulaka...
1: With the ancient Mesopotamians, they were like, look, prevention. Just prevent it from happening. Just bury everyone fine. It's fine.
0: Right. The prevention is the best form of cure. But you can't always just make sure everyone around you lives a perfect life. Although that would be, you know, nice to try to do. I don't know that it
1: has to be a perfect life. I think that they were also like, as long as we like buried them nice. It's okay.
0: There's nothing you can do about whether someone doesn't fall in love. Or dies in pregnancy. Right. Prevention is the best form of cure. So make sure everyone at least gets a proper burial and you'll cut down the risk. But let's be real. A lot of people did not get the proper burial, which means that the face of the earth is crawling with edomu and we just, now you're aware. Once you've seen that fact, you can't unsee it. Now you know. Get your spirit bowls ready. But we're going to talk about the vrikalaka. There is a way to protect yourself from these creatures. The vrikalaka could only knock once. And this knock would be very hard to say no to. they would use the voice of someone you love who recently died, a loved one or a friend or family member, to persuade you to open the door. But if you could hold out, you'd be in the clear for that night. So if someone comes knocking on your door late at night, this is the takeaway. Don't answer. It's late at night. You know that that's totally vampire territory. Just don't answer. Unless unless you ordered pizza. In which
1: case, you might be making questionable life decisions if you're ordering pizza at 1 a.m. So all I'm going to say. I'm not judging you. I've ordered pizza that late. All of my terrible dietary decisions happen when I decide I on want 1 a.m. pizza.
0: Or maybe your best dietary decisions. I don't know, the heartburn later on. <laughs> I mean, I had Thai food at 10.30 at night last night. I'm just going to say that. Well, yeah, I, I had my dinner at
1: Around 10.30 last night, but
0: not at 1. <laughs> <laughs> because we don't sleep. All we do is the podcast.
1: Because if you look on her Instagram, you'll see a photo of me looking like an ancient
0: vampire. <laughs> That's true. She does. Um, so we're going to get into the fact that Jen is a vampire in a minute, but <laughs> let's get through this first. To this day, allegedly, there are still superstitions in some Greek villages about not answering a door until after the second knock because a vrykulaka only knocks once. And this may also be where we get the idea that you have to actually invite a vampire in. And also the vrykulaka can only say your name once a night. Anyone knocking at your door, they have to say your name twice. Basic preventative measures, that's all. What's fascinating here is that the vrykulaka also speaks to the fear of plague, which is, again, what these other ones are also talking about, one of the most terrifying and unexplainable things that could have happened to an ancient community. And I found this article in The Atlantic by James Close that cites the book Vampires, Burial, and Death by Paul Barber, and it explains this really well. Quote, the first person to die from a disease often would be blamed for the ensuing outbreak and the body would be exhumed for investigation. Thanks to the process of decomposition, the corpse would be found transformed from its previous cold, pale, and stiff state. Fresh-looking blood would be seeping from the lips, the face would be ruddy, the body would be engorged and have a fresh new skin that made the nails and hair appear to have grown. The corpse might even gasp if a stake was driven through its lungs, releasing foul and noxious gases.
1: So Jenny, this reminds me of something I heard on the Morbid Curiosity podcast, which is about the Everest Rainbow Bridge. This is a very tenuous connection, guys, but it's about the decomposition process. When you're hiking to the summit of Mount Everest, you will unfortunately pass the corpses of people who did not make it down from the mountain. And what's really fascinating is because of the lack of oxygen and because of the frozen temperatures up there, there are a lot of bodies that are on display in various states of decomposition. Things did not decompose the way you would think they would. You can tell which person they are based on the colors of their parkas. Some of the bodies had frostbite and stuff like that before they passed away. And it's just one of those things where you can actually see bodies decomposing or not decomposing out in the open. You can Google but I just, I don't recommend doing that because it's just deeply upsetting.
0: We're not going to put a picture of that on our show notes. We usually put pictures of things on our show notes. That probably is a little bit much because there are families
1: of the people who, are dead up there. So
0: I think the connection here is decomposition and how you can see um various stages of decomposition, but these bodies don't decompose the way that they would if they were at a lower elevation because of the dry air and the cold. Like it's kind of on display in a way that it's usually not. That's really fascinating and I've got to listen to this podcast. You
1: do. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. So going back to our story and off of our segue. When disease struck a community, the ancient Greeks had ways of keeping their corpses in the ground. The oldest such examples date from around 4,500 BC in the ruins of Camarina.
0: Yeah, and that's something really interesting about the date here. This is the date I remember that you said this is about when this myth dates from, and you're already seeing people doing things to their corpses to keep them from rising, which basically just tells you that these myths are a lot older than we think they are, and this is all oral history and tradition that wasn't written down a lot of the time. So you really don't know how old these myths are, but they're older than we think. Totally. Right. So if we give you a date of this dates from around 6,000 BC, that doesn't mean that's how old it really is. That just means that's the oldest time we found it mentioned or it's the oldest archaeological sign of it we've seen. But it doesn't mean that that's how old it is. Like these could be a great deal older.
1: Absolutely. So the evidence for this was in the city's classical necropolis. And archaeologists have found the remains of over 2,900 people. And it's two of these graves that give us evidence of how the ancient Greeks handled vampires. This is a quote from the popular archaeology article walking dead, and vengeful spirits. Quote, two unique burials stand apart from the rest. The first, tomb number 653, contains an adult of indeterminate sex and stature. In life, this person experienced a period of serious malnutrition or illness, as evidenced by the distinct horizontal lines of growth arrest that are visible on the teeth. What is unusual about tomb 653 is that the head and feet of the individual are completely covered by large amphora fragments. The heavy amphora fragments found in tomb 653 were presumably intended to pin the individual to the grave and prevent it from seeing or rising. The second burial tomb, number 693, contains a child approximately 8 to 13 years old, also of indeterminate sex and stature. No signs of disease are present on the child's skeletal remains, and there are no traces of either a burial container or grave goods. However, what is uncommon is the placement of five large stones on top of the child's body. Like the aforementioned amphora fragments, it appears that these stones were used to trap the body in its grave. The ancient Greeks literally used stones or amphoras to pin suspected vampires to their graves. When the corpse was buried, they seem to have put the head in an amphora to keep the corpse from seeing and put the feet inside one to keep it from walking. They also placed stones on the body to weigh it down.
0: And this is actually super fascinating, the concept of the deviant burial. It's not a phenomenon just limited to ancient Greece. This was done all over the world. Deviant burials seem to arise, especially where there had been plague. And it seems like the first victim of a plague might be buried this way to keep them from walking, but it's not 100% clear why some people got a deviant burial. I think it's also linked to being a criminal. In the Atlantic article that we cited earlier, it talks about practices all across ancient and medieval Europe and other cultures. This has been found, I think, as recently as maybe the 19th century, these deviant burials. It's an extremely ancient practice, but some examples include prone burials where corpses were buried face down. And this way, if the corpse wakes up in the grave and tries to dig its way out, it'll only dig itself deeper. Ooh, Yeah. Decapitation, which was a really common way to prevent corpses from rising. Here's an interesting one. Burying corpses at crossroads. And this gives, this is a quote from the Atlantic article I told you about earlier. This gives, quote, the reanimated corpse, Lots of options in terms of direction of travel. Hopefully not in your direction, which I just thought was funny. And this also reminds me of later practices of burying criminals at crossroads. And I know when we were in London, Jen, there was a whole thing about having the town hanging tree at a crossroads. I have a vague memory of that. Do you remember that? No, no, you're totally right. Because
1: the idea was, I think this sort of stems from like when the person is killed. A lot of times they also buried criminals at the crossroads because they weren't allowed to have a Christian. Jin burial and the idea was you wanted to put them somewhere that they couldn't come back to you so usually they chose like a four-way stop so that the body would go in whatever direction, but hopefully not yours.
0: Right. And I think that that links back to a much older perception, which is that if you didn't live an ideal life or if there was violence somehow related to your death, then you're at risk of rising again. Exactly. Another kind of deviant burial involves what we just talked about with these amphora bodies, weighing the corpse down with rocks, millstones, or even bricks in the mouth.
1: That's your favorite one is the bricks in the mouth, isn't it?
0: This is a corpse found in a mass plague burial in Venice, which actually dates from the 16th century. So it's not as ancient as the purview of this podcast, but we still think it's super fascinating. It links back to much older beliefs. Archaeologists have also found corpses buried with the blade of a scythe up against the neck or the hips. There were some bodies found in a 700-year-old graveyard in Bulgaria like that. So things placed in the grave to keep the corpse down, I think, is the theme here. You know what would keep the corpse down, Jenny? What? Just cementing the grave. Just put cement over it. Yeah, well, the ancient Romans actually had some really interesting things about cement. Their cement recipe was extremely high-tech, and it could even harden underwater. So why didn't they cement the graves? Great question. Maybe because it was
1: expensive. Yeah. Moving on. Did you know that the ancient Greeks believed that if you had red hair when you died, you were destined to become a vampire? Jen? Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> Are you saying you're at risk of becoming a vampire? I'm saying that I have to admit that as a lifelong ginger, I am definitely at risk of becoming a vampire one day.
0: Since I've known Jen, <laughs> if you talk to her for more than five minutes, you can kind of tell she has no soul. Thanks, Jenny. Um, and yeah, and this is, I always assume because she's a redhead and redheads have no soul, right? This is just obvious.
1: It is possible we don't have souls.
0: But you shouldn't pick on us. <laughs> You're right. I shouldn't pick on you for that. You can't help it. That
1: part, I can't help. The rest of my obnoxiousness, I can help.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't going to go that far. (laughs) Anyway, Jen is a redhead. If you couldn't tell from our Instagram and all the pictures that we post of ourselves, she's a redhead and she has no soul. And I'm coming to knock on your door in the next life. (laughs) (laughs) She always says your name once. Just one. (laughs)
1: so when I was doing the research I was trying to like get down to the bottom of this myth uh, as to why redheads would become vampires and there are some interesting reasons why the ancient Greeks and Mesopotamians believed that redheads were doomed to walk the earth as vampires the first is just kind of common sense. Us pale gingers, we burn. I mean, I'm not going to say the sun is my natural enemy, but I do always go out with a factor 50 on.
0: Yeah, she does. I'm the worst friend ever. And whenever Jen and I go on any kind of a vacation, I need to go to the beach and I drag Jen to the beach. And this is just really not a good thing to do to her because there's an umbrella and there's a lot of drapey clothes and there is vats of sunscreen and large floppy hats. So yeah, I'm corroborating that.
1: I mean, the thing is, it really upsets me when like Jenny and my husband and I go on holiday. My husband, he's British, but there's definitely some Mediterranean there because he gets a wicked tan. Jenny gets a tan. I do not tan, even though half my ancestry is from the British Isles and Ireland. And the other half is from Italy, (laughs) from both northern and southern Italy. And I'm like, but I don't, I don't get why I don't get a tan.
0: You know why, Jen? We've talked about this before. It's because you have some Gothic ancestry. No! Are you saying I'm a gothic vampire? Yeah, I'm saying you're a gothic vampire. I read this somewhere, and I haven't done a huge deep dive into this for the podcast, so this might be wrong. But what I know about redheaded northern Italians is that we think of Mediterranean people as mostly having darker hair and darker skin and getting, you know, a tan, which makes sense because the sun is really strong. But there are people, especially in northern Italy, who have lighter hair and lighter skin, and a lot there are a lot of redheads. Like, I actually, you're not the only northern Italian redhead that I know. This is... Ancient Gothic ancestry, because like the Germanic people were likelier to be blonde and redheaded. They come from a more northern climate, but there was a whole lot of migration where the Huns were moving around at certain points in time, during Alaric's time, for example, and pushing those people south. A lot of Germanic people came into, especially northern Italy, and we were telling the story about the Gothic War and uh, large amounts of refugees getting pushed over the Danube and winding up in northern Italy. So people who are descendants of that group are likely likelier to have lighter hair and lighter skin, which may be where you get your red hair, Jen. Totally, because
1: red hair is recessive. So you have to have it on both sides of your parents' genealogy. So there's just no way that there aren't redheads from my mom's side of the family.
0: Your mom's side of the family is the Italian side, right? Is the Italian side.
1: Yeah. My dad's side is the Irish-Scottish and my dad has a ginger afro. (laughs) 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 not so much anymore he did in the 70s and i remember for a lot of my my childhood it was quite puffy now it's it's not but he's maintained his hair which is wonderful and the color
0: So basically, it makes a lot of sense that there would be Northern Irish blood in your dad because also Norwegians. So that's another, you know, the Vikings are basically goths with boats. (laughs) (laughs) Goths and boats do mix if you're in Norway and you're a Viking. So this, like your gothic ancestry gen on both sides of your family. Maybe like
1: Alaric is secretly like my great, 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 great relative.
0: He could be your ancestor, but it could just be that you're a vampire. It could just be that I'm a vampire. You know, you can see
1: how the ancient people would think that someone who has to avoid the sun or risk getting burned might just come back as a creature that stalks the night.
0: Another thing about vampires that we have in modern times is that they they burn in the sun.
1: And it's also like if you don't go out in the sun and you are quite pale, then your skin is much paler. Like think about how pale my skin is compared to like your skin and Glenn's skin. You don't look the same.
0: Well, I always knew there was something about you, Jen, and now I'm finding out that you're a vampire.
1: A gothic vampire.
0: Explains so much. (laughs) It totally (laughs) does. But
1: yeah, that might be where the myth that vampires couldn't go out in the sun came from. But as we're going to find out in the next myth, that is not true for all vampires.
0: The next vampire we're going to talk about is the Vraicolatio. So Santorini is on both of our bucket lists. We both have a fantasy about renting a writing cave and going there. Why does it have to be a cave? I think we found this Airbnb. Yeah, that was a cave. Right. It was like this really decked out cave and like writing cave. This is now a thing between me and Jen. Listen, Santorini Tourist
1: Bureau, if somehow this gets forwarded on to you, you know, we would love to visit if you could just give us a little cave for like a month or even a week, we would be there in a heartbeat. I
0: mean, I think we should probably pay for the cave. I think that is good to contribute to the local economy, but we should rent the cave and there should be a balcony that overlooks the caldera. So I'm a massive volcanic
1: I'm a massive volcano nerd.
0: She's a volcanic Nerd.
1: <laughs> <laughs> One day I would really like to do an episode on the Thera eruption in Santorini, which uh, took place in 1642 BC. And this had a massive impact on the Minoan culture. I'm not going to go into it here because we're not talking about it, but spoilers, it wasn't a good impact. So I thought I knew a lot about the island, but I was wrong. <laughs> you, you, you can imagine my shock when researching this episode. I found out that Santorini is famous for its vampires. <laughs> I didn't know this either.
0: This is amazing.
1: I didn't. And like now I'm like, should I go to Santorini or should I not? Because vampires. There's one particular kind of vampire that is native to Santorini. And that's the Vrai Colatio
0: the Vrycolatios are pretty nasty vampires and they are cousins of the Vrykolakas. So their myths sprung up around the same time. Native to the volcanic soil of Santorini, these vampires are also described as corpse-like and swollen with the blood of their victims, like the Vrycolacas. And the Vrycolatios did have a similar M.O. to the Vrykolakas. They also showed up at your door impersonating a recently deceased loved one, and they also only knocked once. But unlike the Vrykolakas, the Vrycolatios could come out day or night and that's proof, Jenny, that I can't be one of them. I was suspecting that you might be, so I'm glad that we cleared that up. You might be of Raikolaka, but you're definitely not of Raikolatio. No, but I'm also not dead, so I'm not either yet. <laughs> right, you're not. True. Unless
1: I am, and I've just been, like, around forever.
0: Maybe I'm hallucinating you. <laughs> Maybe this whole podcast is just me talking to myself.
1: Or talking to an ancient vampire.
0: Oh, my God. How many times have you said my name in this podcast already? (laughs) Now I've got to go back and check. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so the Vricolatios don't just like to suck your blood, sit on your chest, and steal your life force or spread disease because, of course, they also do those things. But Vricolatios take things a step further. They have sex with you while they're sucking your blood. And that is how you die. Suck and fuck vampires. (laughs) Suck and fuck vampires. (laughs) That's what's happening. Well, I mean, that's
1: how they, they like to get their feet on.
0: I bet that there's varicolatia porn out there Um, because there has to be. And if there isn't, there will be after this podcast. Don't
1: tweet us that that porn.
0: Don't send us the link. We don't need to know. Whatever you want to do, it's fine, but we don't have to watch it. So moving on. So these vampires get it on with the living before they make you dinner. And I guess I, I just have some questions about that. Like, is this consensual, Jen, or not? The thing is, the myths didn't tell me one way or another. And
1: these are creatures that look like bloated corpses, maybe, or winged demons or gusts of wind. So I really don't know.
0: The ancient sources don't tell us what this is like. So vrykulatios could be either men or women, and they could target either men or women or, you know, people of whatever gender This is non-gender specific, and these may be the oldest vampire myths we found that incorporate another staple of vampire mythology that we're a lot more familiar with in modern times, and that is sex. Although the vrykulatio is not necessarily supernaturally hot, we just went over this, blood swollen corpses, who knows what the victim is actually seeing. Exactly. They could be totally seduced and seeing their recently deceased mate, maybe. Or they're getting some crazy endorphin boost and it's like, hey. Maybe it's sort of like an insect injecting its victim with poison to make them... Or pheromone. Right, to make them more acquiescent while they suck their lifeblood. blood. I I don't know. I mean, this is total speculation here. This is for the fan fiction. <laughs> but the point is that people didn't really survive the encounter to talk about it, I guess. So we don't know. Moving on,
1: we're just going to keep going. While I was researching these vampires,
0: I found out something
1: really, really interesting about Santorini. Apparently, the people of mainland Greece believed that Santorini was a great place to send your unwanted vampires, because allegedly, the vampires couldn't cross the salt water of the Aegean on their own. So if you could somehow put put your vampire tormentor on a boat and get it to Santorini, it would be stuck on the island.
0: I have so many questions about that, too. So do I. We just have to stop for a minute and talk about this. <laughs> if you have a vampire, okay, like you have a vrykolakas or something, is it not like super difficult to tie it up and put it on a cart and like bring it the four-day journey through the mountains that it takes to get to the coast and then put it on a boat? I could see how this could go very, very wrong.
1: (laughs) Well, exactly. Surely it would be easier just to find out where it lives, put its head in an amphora, put its feet in an amphora, weigh it down with some millstones and just like leave it in its grave. I don't understand how it would be easier to transport it to Santorini. You could be somewhere like the Ionian Islands, which is where we were recently in Corfu. That is a long trip.
0: I think that the Santorini solution is really only practical for people who live within the region of Santorini. I feel like vampire boat captain would be a really great niche market. I bet people who are desperate enough to transport their vrykolakas four days over the mountains or whatever in a cart, they'd probably pay a lot for you to transport their vampire to Santorini, wouldn't they? Don't you think this is
1: something like Artemisia might have done after she retired from serving in the Navy? She could totally be a vampire boat captain. I guess the other thing you could think about is also when you go back to plagues. Like, was this a way to get rid of plague bodies and take them somewhere else? To Santorini, for example? To Santorini or just somewhere far off where they wouldn't be in your town anymore. And hopefully that would stop the spread of disease. Was that really what this was about? Someone collecting these bodies and then disposing of them?
0: This also really reminds me of the more modern lore that vampires can't cross oceans or running water. Does it have to do with that, Jen? I don't know about that because this isn't the
1: first place you would have seen it. I suspect that this trip goes even further back into Egyptian mythology. But this is the place when I was doing this research where it really becomes codified into the vampire mythology. And this is where the rumor that Santorini became a vampire quarantine zone comes from.
0: Why do we want to go there again? Vampire quarantine zone? Because it's beautiful.
1: Also like an ancient volcano that may or may not erupt again and you know, plunge the whole world into a volcanic winter but
0: it's beautiful <laughs> we love santorini we do want to go there we would like to see more you know current travel advisories about the vampire issue but we do want We definitely want to go to santorini <laughs> yeah. at some point
1: point. <laughs> and i can i can totally bet jenny that the people of santorini weren't thrilled with the mainland greeks outsourcing their vampire problem to them
0: I thought they were really not thrilled about this. But here's the thing. The people of Santorini totally coped. They became experts at dealing with the influx of vampires to their island, And the lore on this is pretty scattered and not that reliable, but what we found is that apparently the people of Santorini in the ancient times had their own order of vampire hunters. People would travel there from incredible distances to get help in dealing with their vampire epidemics. The other thing about Santorini is that they had the Vricolatio, which is a particularly nasty form of vampire that was native to the region. And how do you get rid of that? How do you deal with a Vrycolatio? The best way to destroy these vampires was to cut out the heart boil it in wine, and then return the wine-soaked heart to the corpse. One interesting thing is that the
1: volcanic soil of Santorini makes it difficult for bodies to decompose normally. So you can see why the people would think that the bodies buried in this soil, which weren't breaking down properly, would then become vampires. And this is why Santorini became the vampire capital of Greece allegedly. In my research, I came across the fact that Santorini is one of the few regions in Greece where cremation and not burial is the norm. Again, this is possibly because the soil just wasn't conducive to burial. And possibly to protect against vampires.
0: I mean, you never know. If your community has a problem with corpses rising from the dead, you might want to switch to cremation. Also, they can't be zombies, so. But one thing is for sure, if you're visiting Santorini
1: and you get a knock on the door late at night, do not answer it. Wait. If you get a second knock, make sure the voice on the other side says your name at least twice. You've been warned. The same goes for Tinder, guys. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I bet there are a lot of thirsty bricolatios on Sandorini Tinder. <laughs> I bet so too. Just be careful. Get them to say your name twice. You've been warned. <laughs> So the next type of vampire, ancient world vampire, we're going to talk about are the imbusa and the lamia. So the imbusa and the lamia were the ancient Greek versions of vampires and succubi. The earliest references to these were around the 4th century BC. So these are um, much, or at least the earliest references to these are much younger. So these vampires took the form of beautiful flame-haired women. I am totally giving you side eye right now. I mean... I'm not going to say that I am an imbuza, but I'm not going to say that I'm not an imbuza. Jen, I just, I'm learning so many disturbing things about you in in this episode. One of the things that I'm learning about Jen (laughs) is that behind the facade of a beautiful flame-haired lady, Jen (laughs) has two mismatched legs, one of brass and one of a donkey. How did I not notice this about you?
1: I mean, I've been very, very, very forthcoming about my ass leg, okay? I really have. (laughs) In case you're wondering, I did not just swear ass is another word for donkey.
0: (laughs) We did say fucking suck vampire at the last (laughs) session. We had a rule originally about this podcast and not saying the F word and we have completely blown past that rule in this episode that's what's happened
1: sorry guys
0: (laughs) anyway i've known jen for a really long time and i didn't notice the whole time that she had one leg that is a donkey leg and one leg that is made of brass they're both very sexy legs they're great it's just that one is a donkey leg donkeys are awesome though so i can't you know brass and donkey i mean we adopted a donkey
1: (laughs) we had to after i took its leg
0: It was the least we could do. The other thing that I guess this is a thing that Jen likes to do that I did not know <laughs> that Mbuzas do is lure young men into their beds for a romp and also to feast on their flesh and blood. I mean, how does your husband feel about that, Jen? Well, I mean, the thing is, Mbuzas is going to like <laughs> I mean, ancient mythical vampire, he doesn't have much say about that. <laughs> <laughs> he knew what you were when he married you. I mean... <laughs> Oh my god, (laughs) Mbuza is gonna embuza. There's just not a lot you can do. (laughs) Mbuza's were companions of the goddess of magic, Hekate. They were known to hang out at crossroads, which sounds familiar. This totally refers back to the tradition of burying corpses at a crossroads so that they don't travel in your direction. You're giving the reanimated corpse a lot of options. Anyway, the Mbuza would hang out at the crossroads where they would frighten travelers, seduce travelers, and sometimes just get yelled at and body shamed by travelers.
1: Yeah, because apparently if you insulted an imbuza, then the creature would let out a shrill cry and sulk off to lick its emotional wounds, which I have not done.
0: Just letting you know that. I have known you to let out a shrill cry every so often.
1: Generally, the best way to get an imbuza to slink off was to insult her looks, and that's totally not cool. Like, I am a beautiful ass in brass creature. Come on. If this is the way that you fight an imbuza, it's so problematic. Body shaming is no joke, Jenny. I'm serious about this.
0: If you're going to insult the imbuza, I think it's totally legit to insult her behavior, right? It isn't cool to devour young men. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely going to seduce you and eat you,
1: but <laughs> there has to be a more fair way of dealing with imbuzas than by
0: body shaming them. Ass and brass legs are super beautiful. Super beautiful. We would just get eaten by the Ambuza because we don't want to body shame the Ambuza. We just don't feel that that's appropriate.
1: I kind of just prefer the myth where Ambuzas are hanging out at the crossroads, maybe drinking a martini or two, all out in sort of ancient society, being visible, seducing young men, taking them back to their bed for, you know, a night of passionate romping they'll never wake up from.
0: So we came across this quote about the Ambuza from The Life of Apollonius of Tiana by Philostratus. Quote, The Ambuza was yet another female monster. She was in the train of Hecate and originally was sent out to frighten travelers. She was supposed to have one leg of brass and one of an ass, which we've talked about. This absurd combination, which I disagree with that word, lends a certain comical effect rather than one of horror. It's not comical. It's a medical marvel. Right. Would you please stop body shaming the imbuza, Philostratus. Moreover, a traveler could rout the monster with insulting words, causing her to flee with a shrill shrieking. Naughty children were threatened with visits from this awkward creature. But the embouze were not comical at all when it came to their real design, which was luring men, especially young ones, to bed. For this purpose, they could turn themselves into beautiful women, in which shape they sucked the blood from their victims and ate their flesh. We wanted to include this quote because it shows how deeply the Ambuza were in the cultural zeitgeist of ancient Greece. Ancient Greece had embuzas in its Zeitgeist, you guys. Before
1: we unpack that quote, Jenny, I wanted to talk about the other female vampire esque creature, which is the Lamia, and the Lamia were kind of the cousin of the Ambuza. The Lamia were also companions of Hecate, and they too took the form of beautiful women to seduce young men and eat their flesh and drink their blood and steal their life force. Lamia had the tail of a serpent, and their name translates to land shark, which makes me ask, are you a Lamia? I might be a Lamia. You are totally a land shark.
0: I mean, if you get to be an Ambuza, I get to be a Lamia.
1: Yeah, exactly. We've uncovered your secret.
0: It explains so much that, like, the reasons we're friends. So much in common. <laughs> the devouring of young men, the stealing of the life force. Our devotion to the goddess Hecate. I mean, it makes, it makes sense. This is how we met in the train of the goddess Hecate.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I've got a quote from theory.com about the Lamia. Quote, in later times, Lamia were conceived as handsome, ghostly women who by voluptuous artifices attracted young men in order to enjoy their fresh, useful, and pure flesh and blood. They were thus in ancient times what the vampires are in modern legends. And now I just, I really want to unpack these two myths because they say a lot about Greek society.
0: This is, I think, the first time that we came across sex and death in the vampire myth in a way that is seductive. And you're seeing these vampires adopting the form of beautiful women who are very much out in public and having sexual agency and seducing young men and sucking their life force. And I mean, geez, what does that say? About What does that say about ancient Greek attitudes towards women who were out in public, number one? Well, yeah. And we we just
1: did quite a lot in Amazons about the role of Greek women, which was really to kind of be shut-ins to their house and totally under the control of their male family members. They were really not meant to be seen in public unless they were running some kind of errand and usually escorted by some family members.
0: Yeah, I think that there was definitely a class thing there because women of the lower classes didn't have the luxury of staying inside. They had to go outside and like get stuff done. But women who were richer had servants. They had people to escort them places. So I guess it was probably easier to stay inside. But this was kind of this cultural expectation. And this is just sort of a way for the ancient Greeks to teach young girls what it looks like when they're out and about being bold and outgoing in public. Like you might be a monster. This is
1: a cautionary tale for young girls. Don't be too beautiful. Don't be too available in the public eye. Don't allow other people to look on you and think that you're special and beautiful because that might put you at risk of being some kind of monster.
0: And also don't be too outspoken or have too much agency. And also don't be anywhere on your own at night
1: traveling on your own. And what it says to young boys is beware beautiful women who are on their own. Beware women who you're not directly introduced by your parents and told to marry because they're your second cousin once removed. All women are suspicious if they're not in some way being corralled.
0: Right. Don't be by yourself. I think that it speaks toward ancient Greek and patriarchal societies' anxiety over women who have their own sexual agency and women who are also not attached to a man or under the control of a man. I think it also speaks to anxiety that men had over their own desire for women. This is an ancient thing that is really present in modern times. Women who are out on their own, who are too powerful, seem to be pursuing their own pleasure. Yeah, they're the enemy. And that was just, to me, that was just absolutely eat upsetting,
1: but it does dovetail with the society, really.
0: It dovetails with the society, and you can see so many parallels in modern society. That just really strikes me a lot of the time when we're reading about this ancient stuff. It's like, oh, that's where that comes from. I had no idea how old that was. I want to talk about
1: everyone's favorite wayfaring adventurer, Odysseus. One of the myths that I always found fascinating as a nerdy, mythology-obsessed girl was the part in the Odyssey where Odysseus descends into the underworld. The epic poem The Odyssey by Homer dates from around the 8th century BC. To this day, I really can't 100% remember why Odysseus had to travel to the underworld. I'm sure there was some possibly logical reason, but that man got sidetracked so much that even I lost the plot at times. The whole point of the
0: Odyssey is Odysseus getting sidetracked, right? It's Odysseus getting sidetracked and
1: drunk in the Mediterranean while having adventures. whole giant detour. But what I did remember was what happened when he got to the Underworld on Cersei's very clear instructions, because Cersei was a badass witch, he knew a thing or two about magic, the dead, and you know, not incurring the wrath of the shades who were dead spirits, Odysseus was able to communicate with the spirits of many former heroes.
0: The thing is, though, there was a catch to Odysseus being able to communicate with the dead. In order for the souls of the deceased to speak to Odysseus, he had to offer them something they wanted, something they couldn't produce themselves. That something was blood. Only when they drunk some of the blood of the sacrificial animals that he'd brought along for the journey on Circe's advice were the dead able to tell Odysseus their stories.
1: And this was probably the first time I'd ever been introduced to anything resembling an ancient Greek vampire myth.
0: Because that's what the shades really
1: were when you got down to it. Vampires. They could only have a sort of half existence if they ingested the blood of the living, and they constantly craved that blood. And it's also why the living were forbidden from traveling to the underworld, and why there was a big dog blocking the entrance and exit of the underworld. These rules weren't just for the protection of the dead. They were to maintain order and protect the living. Cerberus
0: is there for your protection.
1: Don't try and bypass him, but do him doggy treats because he has a tough job.
0: Make sure you bring enough doggy treats for all the heads.
1: I totally agree. Each head deserves a treat. So this is totally a fake myth. But when I was doing the research, I loved it so much and it brings something different to the episode. So I wanted to tell it and that's
0: it. It's our podcast. We get to lie to you if we want.
1: We get to tell you some creepypasta if we want, because we're telling you it's definitely creepypasta. So you'll have to indulge us here while we tell you the story of Celine and Ambrosio. So this myth has all my favorite elements of a vampire origin story. This myth is supposed to be taken from the quote-unquote vampire bible, or a series of curses placed on Ambrosio to make him the first vampire.
0: So basically what the Vampire Bible is, it's a series of curses carved into the Temple of Delphi. And this is actually a thing that really did happen. If you wanted to curse someone in ancient Greece or have a god curse someone, you would go to their temple and you'd have a curse inscribed on the temple's walls. So this really did happen. However, this Vampire Bible, these curses on this guy, Ambrosio, those don't exist. That is not a real thing. This is an unverified creepypasta. It may date from the 19th century, but we're not even sure that that is the case. Way back in ancient Greece, I mean, unverified time, because why do we need a time? General ancient Greece.
1: (laughs) Greece in the age of heroes. Selene worked at the Temple of Apollo in Delphi as a temple maiden. Her sister was the oracle, and it was Selene's job to look after her sister when she was getting down with the prophecy, you know, getting her trance on.
0: Right, when she was inhaling the volcanic
1: fumes. Fumes, yeah, because that's what they did. Ambrosio was an Italian man, and again, this
0: is the first point where I was like, Italian, really? Wouldn't he be a Roman man? I don't actually know the etymology of the word Italy or Italian, but I think they would say Roman. But they didn't call him that. Creepy pasta. Creepy pasta. I just like saying creepy pasta.
1: <laughs> I do too. I feel like it's like pasta with like all little like vampire and ghost faces like with cheese.
0: Some company should make creepypasta macaroni <laughs> with like vampire faces. Oh my god, please do. Let's get back to our man Ambrosio
1: who's living the uh, creepypasta life. He was traveling through Greece and he stopped at the Oracle of Delphi. If you're passing through that way, why wouldn't you have your fortune told by the most famous oracle in the world? So Ambrosio goes to have his fortune told and fall falls in love with Celine at first sight. The problem was Apollo had also taken a liking to Celine, because in all of mythology, Apollo rarely sees a pretty girl or a boy. He likes everyone.
0: Uh, Apollo is beyond the binary, okay? <laughs> oh, he totally is. The problem is,
1: if you are pretty in Apollo's eyes and he takes a liking to you, he then is kind of a monster. He gets a little possessive. Selene fell in love with Ambrosio, and when Ambrosio proposed, Selene was like, Oh, hell yeah. I'd love to go off with you and not have to babysit my sister when she's high on volcanic fumes and just, you know, in general have a nice life. And they both agreed to meet at the temple the next morning and head out.
0: Apollo totally pulled in Apollo. He was pissed off that Ambrosio was stealing one of his temple maidens, so he cursed Ambrosio to never be allowed to feel the sun without his flesh burning. Jen knows what that's like. Because Apollo is the god of curses, diseases, and the son. (laughs) You know, he just cursed him to have really bad sunburns for the rest of his life. So poor Ambrosio could not go out in the sun to meet Celine. He took shelter in a cave and called on Hades, the god of the underworld, to help him out. Hades offered protection for Ambrosio and Celine. All Ambrosio had to do was get Artemis's silver bow. Totally simple task, right? Oh, and while he was off getting that bow, Hades decided to hang on to Ambrosio's soul because, you know, collateral. It's kind of like somebody hanging to your driver's license. Of course, Ambrosio wasn't able to get his hands on Artemis's bow. I At one point in time, he tricked Artemis into lending him her bow, but once she discovered what he was up to, she cursed him so that Silver would burn him as well, and this actually dovetails into why Silver burns modern vampires. And I just kind of feel like Ambrosio was not up to these heroic tasks that were set in front of him, Jen. Well, I kind
1: of agree. I also think, as far as I can tell on this myth, Ambrosio was not a demigod. So these were all really difficult tasks for someone who is not a demigod. The only other non-demigod who springs to mind who had like a bunch of difficult god tasks was Psyche from keeping and In Psyche.
0: Yeah, you know, I actually didn't even think of
1: that. I'm sure there are other guys who were also not demigods, but this is just what was running through my mind.
0: This is just what comes to the top of our heads, which whatever comes to the top of our heads during an episode is really a crapshoot. But anyway, so Ambrosio, this whole situation had just turned into a giant dumpster fire. And Ambrosio, Hades has his soul. Apollo won't let him go out in the sun. He's just ghosted this girl that he's into because sunburn, which I'm sure that didn't go over well. And now he's made an enemy of Artemis. So Ambrosio just puts all his cards on the table, and explains the situation to Artemis. And funnily enough, because he's really pathetic at this point, Artemis takes pity on the guy. She tells him, okay, you know what, Ambrosio, if you and Celine will worship me, I'll make you the second best hunter in the world, second only to me, of course. In this deal, Ambrosio would get fangs and the speed of a god. But there are a few catches.
1: Ambrosio still can't go out in the daylight. And he'll be immortal, but Celine will die. Plus he'll also be soulless because Hades still isn't handing over that soul. And since Artemis is a virgin goddess, he and Celine can't have sex ever. Oh and Ambrosio needs to drink human blood to stay alive. But not Celine's. And yeah, you know, that's just a small catch. Just a small catch. So Celine and Ambrosio agree to these, you know, pretty crappy terms, and Ambrosio becomes the first
0: vampire. Celine is just kind of it seems like she's settling, don't you think? Ambrosio ghosted her because sunburned, and then he just totally was not up to the God tasks. And then he's like, okay, well, we can be together, but here are all the real crappy terms that you're going to have to settle with. No sex... And you're gonna die, and I don't. And all this, and now you have to live in the temple of Artemis instead of the temple of Apollo. And it's kind of just a lateral move here. Like, you're not really moving up, you're still a temple maiden. Don't settle for the first guy who comes along and gets turned into a vampire for you, Celine. Just, you know, wait it out. Here's the thing
1: as we learned with Atalanta, if you do not find a guy who will actually like race to the death to have your hand in marriage, then he's probably not worth it.
0: Okay, right, you could find a Hippomenes. A Hippomenes could happen along. And he had to cheat to win, and you got some sweet golden apples. I kind of feel like Atalanta did a lot better. Wait it out, wait for the guy
1: with three golden apples, because I'll tell you what, that is always going to be the better deal.
0: Somebody who's up for the task will come along.
1: <laughs> so I'm going to get back to the crappy life these two had. Celine left Delphi and agreed to be a temple maiden at Artemis's temple in Ephesus. And Ambrosio and Celine live out Celine's mortal life with Celine aging and Ambrosio staying youthful and hunky while drinking other people's blood and getting his moon tan on.
0: As Celine's mortal life is about to end, Artemis allows Ambrosio to drink her blood. Yet another example of Celine getting the combining their blood, and this blood combination allows Ambrosio to make other vampires. Artemis also decides that Selene has been a great follower all these years, and she's going to do her a solid and make her the immortal goddess of the moonlight so that she can shine down and be with her husband forever. I mean, I guess that's a happy ending i kind
1: of love that this is a vampire love story and i really loved that whoever's written this creepypasta drew a lot from the myths it used greek mythology to explain so many elements of traditional vampire mythology like drinking blood the aversion to silver the aversion to sunlight soullessness Wait, hold up. Isn't it werewolves that have a thing about silver? Well, the werewolves definitely have a thing about silver, but actually lots of vampire lore is about silver burning vampires. A really good recent example of this is True Blood. They used silver chains to subdue and burn vampires. Oh, While I love the idea of this myth because it explains the origins of some of our modern vampire lore, there are so many signs that this is not an ancient vampire myth. And that's because it's a huge departure from the more ancient vampire lore that existed at the time. For instance, none of those myths mentioned vampires being soulless. Instead, they refer to them as demons or creatures who attack and murder their victims.
0: Yeah, and the ancient vampire myths we looked at so far seem to have more to do with anxiety around plague and the way that bodies decompose and violent death, like unexplained death and personality changes, like stuff you can't explain any other way than about romance. You do sometimes see sex and death combined in some of these ancient vampire myths, but it's really not in a romantic way. Like it's more in like a, I'm going to have sex with you and then devour you way. Yeah, it's more sex is a cautionary tale. Yeah, so the connection between romance and vampire. Is very much there, but it's a lot more of a modern phenomenon. But anyway, even if that's the case, considering all the blood and death we've been talking about, we just thought a love story would be a nice change of pace.
1: In ancient Rome, the creatures that most resembled vampires were Strixes. Strixes, or Striges, or Striga, were owl-like creatures that brought bad luck to the humans they fed off of. Strixes could also turn into women. I'm just saying that now because it's going to get a little weird if I don't. Strixes love to chow down on baby meat. Of course they had to do this in the grossest way possible.
0: Is there a non-gross way to chow down on baby
1: meat? No, but this is pretty gross. Strixes would feed a baby their poisoned breast milk and then feast on the baby's
0: blood. I have so many questions about that. Go for it. Why did they need to feed the baby poison breast milk? Like, why couldn't they just eat the baby? That's what
1: I was thinking too. And I guess maybe it wasn't poison the way we think poison. Maybe it was kind of like spiked and it was a narcotic to keep the baby quiet and subdued so they didn't have to like rush their meal.
0: Oh man, I totally understand that. Like if you've ever been on a plane with a baby for six hours, I get it, Strega. That's all I'm saying. So the other
1: thing about Strixes or Strega is that Strega is the Italian word for witch. And if you were a kid growing up anytime past the 80s, especially in America, you might have been read a book called Streganona. And Streganona actually
0: means grandmother wit. Which grandma? Wasn't there like a big vat of pasta in that story? Oh my God, there's a big vat of creepy pasta in that story. Pasta, underlying theme of this whole episode. Anyway, so Strixes love to turn into beautiful women and seduce men, which is, um, ancient Romans are now totally biting off the ancient Greeks, which is basically what they did the whole time. The Strixes would have sex with a man, drink his blood, and drain him of all his fluids. You don't survive the mating dance of the Strix.
1: No, you don't.
0: The Strixes
1: weren't vampires the way we think of them. They weren't corpses or demons who rose from the grave. Instead, they were owl-like creatures who could also turn into beautiful women, because why not? This myth might be where we get the idea that vampires could turn into bats, or potentially where witches' familiars came from. And the ancient Romans, unlike the Mesopotamians, thought up a few ways you could keep the Strixes out of your home. It took more than good burial practices. You placed a Hawthorne branch on your window or put drugged water on your doorway. And also, presumably, this drugged water would keep the Strix pretty drunk or high for the evening.
0: And if all else failed, you could destroy a Strix by beheading it, which is a vampire staple. You get a lot of beheaded corpses in deviant burials or by driving a stake through its heart. So here is one of my favorite, one of my favorite myths, the chewing dead of the ancient goths. Chewing dead. The Naxxerer is a vampire that comes from Alaric's people, the ancient Germanic people. People in Bavaria, Poland, and Silesia also believe in the Naxxerer. I'm sorry, not just Alaric's people, Jenny. Now they're my people because I'm a gothic vampire. That's right. Jen's people... Anybody who is a gothic vampire today probably <laughs> has this, this myth in their folklore. Uh, the name Noxerer means after devourer. And according to some accounts, this type of vampire never leaves its grave, but it still wreaks all kinds of havoc. You can become a Noxerer if you commit suicide or die by accident, so there's the connection to violent, unideal death. Noxerers also tend to crop up when a large number of people die of the plague. The first victim of a plague is believed to be especially at risk of becoming one, so that that, so far, is pretty in line with other ancient myths. But the thing that's different about the Nox era is that it wakes in its grave and devours its own funeral shroud. And then it begins to eat its own body. And as it eats itself, it also devours its family's life force. Above the ground, its family members start to waste away and die. So
1: fascinating. Yeah. In some versions of the myth, the noxer can transform into a pig and it can roam over the earth in this form, devouring any living members of its family. If the noxer gets into the belfry of a church, a whole community is in trouble because if it rings those bells, everyone who hears them will die. And I have to tell you, I love that part of the myth. Like, I love the idea of a pig getting into a belfry, ringing the bells, and causing an entire community to die.
0: I don't know why. (laughs) I mean, that is such an imbuza thing to say, Jen. It totally, totally was. Things (laughs) that I I now understand a lot better about you. Your penchant for murder podcasts and serial killers, for one thing.
1: (laughs) So if you're hunting my friend, the Noxer, the place to start is the local graveyard be quiet and listen. The Noxers are noisy eaters. The chewing grunting noises they make in the grave can be heard by passersby. And that's how you can find one.
0: errors. <laughs> <laughs> You can also tell a noxerror by sight. Nox are bas- they're basically corpses that look eaten or chewed upon. That's the first thing. In addition to that, noxerrors always lie in the grave with their left eye open and one thumb held in the opposite hand. That is so weird. <laughs> <laughs> Whose thumb? Like, I just don't
1: understand. Did they bite their own thumb off and then hold it in their other hand?
0: Well, the sources don't say. Well, I'm disappointed, Jenny. I'm sorry. You could just be holding one thumb in the hand, or it could have actually come off in the eating and you're holding it. I really don't know. What has one thumb and one left eye open and eats itself? This knocks error. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I can't stop.
1: This does not surprise me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, okay moving on i actually found when i was researching this there's a religious tract by i think a priest or somebody in the christian church who lived around the 16th century i think that was called quote on the chewing dead and it had a lot of methods for what to do if you have a error in your graveyard once you find one one of the things you can do is place stones or soil in its mouth or cut off its head or drive a stake through its mouth and the belief here is that if you could keep the corpse from eating it would starve to death. I think that the thing that really drew me to the myth of the Nox era is that it paints a picture of a very grim reality. So imagine a plague-stricken village where bodies were buried in shallow graves because there are so many people dying and not enough people to bury them and they don't have time to do the traditional burial practices. So everyone's buried in these sort of shallow trenches where scavengers could dig them up and get at them, leaving chewed up corpses around in the streets. And like, you know, in these agrarian communities, some people would keep pigs. And I guess if somebody in a household dies and their pigs aren't really, they're not really are not being watched. They could get out and maybe they're starving. And maybe so you're just sort of walking through this plague-stricken village and you see these chewed up bodies around getting eaten by these pigs. Also getting eaten noisily
1: by a pig. Like the noise of it, the crunching and, you know, (gasps) like that. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
0: Right. Like this is the sound that you would hear if you close your eyes and listen. So what this myth is giving us is not only a great visual depiction of what that must have been like, but but like an oral depiction of what it must have been like. It's so much to pack into one myth. This also ties into the way that bodies decompose, like a certain stage in the decomposition process, your digestive juices sometimes come out and the stomach of a body might look chewed upon or even the shroud around the stomach and mouth area might look chewed upon or there might be a hole burned through it from these stomach acids that are kind of coming up through the body. So that could be another reason why they would think that the Noxera eats itself. So interestingly enough, Alaric's people, the ancient Germanic people, also believed that garlic, onions, and leeks could protect against vampires, demons, and other supernatural threats, which is another thing that we have even today, that garlic protects against vampires. And also, I think this was known even from ancient times that garlic has a healing effect. I think it's an antibacterial isn't it Jen
1: I think it is an antibacterial so this is kind of like you know anti-backing your body from supernatural
0: and physical threats yeah so they believed that wearing a leak around your neck could ward off these threats and they also believe like a leak a whole giant leak
1: yes
0: right <laughs> leak around the neck that was a thing among Alex people uh <clears throat> Jen's people thank you <laughs> Leaks don't go with a lot of things. No, I mean, they are a little bit heavy
1: on your neck after a while.
0: It's a statement piece. Sometimes you don't want to make the statement leak. Ancient Goths also believed in runic magic, where writing itself had magical properties. So if you wear something around your neck with the word leak on it, that's basically going to have the same protective properties as wearing a whole leak. In fact, gold medallions have been found dating from as early as the 5th century AD, around Alaric's time, with the word leak inscribed on them, and those would have functioned as magical protection.
1: I kind of want one of those, Jenny.
0: A medallion that says leak? Leak. Leak. (laughs) It'd be amazing. It protects against Nox errors, at least.
1: Well, they're pretty noisy.
0: They are. They'll keep you up at night.
1: When I have my vampire conventions, nobody wants to sleep next to them.
0: Nobody wants to share a room with a Nox error. Let's be real. (laughs) 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 So... So while these, to <laughs> laugh, I'm like trying to defend Oh my God, we're so funny,
1: or so we believe.
0: <laughs> we find ourselves amusing. So
1: while these vampire myths don't all resemble the more modern day vampire myths, there are some aspects of the vampire we're more familiar with that are very ancient: the burning in the sun. The turning into a flying creature, the beheading and driving a stake into the heart, the fact that most vampires start out as corpses. In addition to sucking your blood, these ancient vampires could suck your life force or actually eat your flesh, maybe after having sex with you, because why not?
0: Because sex and death, death and sex, that's why not.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Things you can't escape, much like taxes.
0: Right. (laughs) Many
1: vampire myths seem to have their origin surrounding plague. In the face of such an incredible apocalyptic calamity, a community can reclaim its sense of control by doing something, even if that something involves digging up a corpse of the recently buried plague victim and taking steps to make sure it doesn't torment the living.
0: Also, the vampire myths seem to exist to explain some things that must have looked really mysterious to ancient people. Questions we've all asked, like, why does this dead body look all swollen and full of blood like a giant tick? I've asked that question.
1: Have you? Because I have never seen a dead body that looked swollen and, like, had the body of a giant tick.
0: Just saying. As an imbuza, I find that hard to believe. Look, when I'm done with them. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't leave him around to decompose, is what she's saying.
1: Hey, I've been around for centuries and not been caught yet.
0: That's true, except, you know, now. I'll just
1: go chill at my penguin Antarctic vampire beast.
0: I won't tell anyone where you are, and I'm sure that all of our podcast listeners can also keep a secret. keep it secret you guys don't tell anybody about (laughs) jen and the penguins anyway other mysteries that people might not have had a good answer for like why the sudden change in personality why why is this person lethargic for no reason or sleep paralysis why i've actually asked that question why is there a slender man in the corner of my room why (laughs) right Slenderman. Man, why? <laughs> Ancient vampires have been used to explain everything from physical and mental health issues to sleep problems to the ways a corpse decomposes. And they also reveal some serious anxieties surrounding sex and death, that have existed since the dawn of time. And several of these vampire myths involve beautiful women having sex with and then devouring young men because toxic masculinity, it just keeps coming up. Personally, though, I'd rather just get a cheeseburger. Ooh,
1: now I want a cheeseburger. I
0: guess I'd be the cheeseburger Lamia. Bring the cheeseburger home, have sex with it, devour it. Ew! <laughs> why can't you just devour it? God, Jenny. <laughs> I mean, I it's like the Lamia MO. can
1: suck the life force out of it
0: (laughs) right suck the life force out of the cheeseburger (laughs) and then devour it (laughs) okay we're moving on i also think that that makes our modern vampire trope of the handsome dracula-like vampire who is male devouring women an interesting reversal it's a lot to unpack right because it went non-gender specific to women preying on men to men preying on women and it just says a whole lot about our culture's anxieties around sex and gender that have existed for a really long time Absolutely. They've existed since ancient times, Jenny. The ancient Greeks have so much to answer for. I'm sure there are other people who have a lot
1: to answer for as well.
0: Right, but the ancient Greeks, really.
1: (laughs) We hope you've enjoyed our foray into the macabre. Do you have a favorite ancient vampire myth? Tell us over on social media.
0: Yeah, we definitely did not cover all the vampire myths that we could possibly cover. There are so many things. The Chinese have hopping vampires. Did you know that?
1: Every continent has them, but unfortunately, as you're listening, this is probably an hour or so of vampires already.
0: (laughs) We had to narrow it down, but there's so many more. If you have an interesting vampire myth, maybe from your own folklore, from your own heritage, or, you know, if you just read it somewhere, tweet it to us, because we love talking about this stuff.
1: We're on Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan. Instagram and Facebook, we're Ancient Hist history fangirl or if you don't like social media you can always leave a comment in our show notes and our show notes are a fun place to be there's always gifts and further reading and they're a lot of fun the show notes have become a thing they really have and if you like what we do please consider rating and reviewing us on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts from we're not sure how i mean there's some dark algorithmic magic that happens when you leave a review and this helps the podcast get seen by more people but if you're not into rating and reviewing Tell your friends and family about us because word of mouth is also powerful magic.
0: And if you'd like to help support the podcast, please consider donating to our Ko-Fi fund. Ko-Fi fund, right? Ko-Fi. Coffee. Ko-Fi? I don't know. How many episodes have we done now? Like 15 or something? And every single time I'm like, Ko-Fi, coffee, how do I say this word? Every donation.
1: Every time she does
0: it. I I do. Every time, every... I'm just talking about the donations now, okay? Every donation goes to research, running the podcast, and maybe being able to do this full-time one day, which would be awesome. Full-time history fangirls. Think about the stories we could tell you. You can find out more about our Ko-Fi Coffee Ko-Fi by visiting our website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com, and clicking on the Ko-Fi button at the bottom. We will be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. Thank you guys so much.